This is Lisa Dale Miller. You're about to hear a Dharma talk I gave at Marin Sangha on November 5th, 2017. The topic of this talk is on how to conceptualize and actually practice bodhicitta in our daily lives. May this talk increase the capacity of all beings to be skillful, mindful, and loving in these times of great chaos. Well, tonight I would like to dedicate my talk. Since I saw you, a lot of things have happened. So I'd like to dedicate my talk to all the people who lost their lives in Las Vegas and to all the people who lost their lives in New York City last week. And this morning, to all the churchgoers in the town of 400 people, 26 out of 400 people are now dead because of one, one gunman. I know. To them and their families, I dedicate this talk to them. So I'd like to start with a quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi. According to all Buddhist traditions, to attain the supreme enlightenment of a Buddha requires the forming of a deliberate resolution and the fulfillment of the spiritual perfections, known as the six paramis in the Mahayana vehicle or the ten paramitas in the Theravada vehicle. And Bhikkhu continues by saying, it is a bodhisattva who consummates the practice of these ten or six perfections. Now, Mahayana and Vajrayana practitioners are very familiar with Shantideva's seminal text called The Way of the Bodhisattva. And this text teaches how to cultivate the motivation of what is known as bodhicitta through the practice of the six paramis and through vigilant mindfulness. Because in the Pali Canon, the Buddha rarely utters the word bodhisattva to refer to himself or any other being for that matter, there remains a common misunderstanding that the Theravada school teaches only the path to awakening as a disciple of the Buddha. However, Theravada history shows that many Theravadins vowed to become bodhisattvas and undertook the practice of the paramitas or the ten perfections. Bhikkhu Bodhi continues with his quote. He says, It is perplexing that no teachings about a bodhisattva path or bodhisattva practices are included in the discourses regarded as coming down from the most archaic period of Buddhist literary history. This remains a puzzle for me personally, he says. And also, I believe, a puzzle for Buddhist historiography. So I wanted to begin this way with one of the most respected Theravada Buddhist scholars, Bhikkhu Bodhi, talking about 
the bodhisattvic path and the way of the bodhisattva and becoming a bodhisattva because tonight I'm going to speak about bodhicitta. And bodhicitta is not talked about a lot in the Theravada, but it is a primary practice of a bodhisattva. And so I wanted to establish right off the bat, that many Theravadins have considered themselves on the path of the Bodhisattva by practicing the Ten Paramitas, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And that it is not just, the Bodhisattva is not just for Mahayana and Vajrayana practitioners, and therefore neither is Bodhicitta. And so Bodhicitta, for me right now, Bodhicitta is sort of a supreme um, refuge in these turbulent times that we seem to be facing. So I will start my talk on bodhicitta with a quote from the eminent Tibetan scholar and yogi Longchenpa. And he said, There is born in you exceeding compassion for all those living creatures who have forgotten their true nature. So this is the core of the teachings on bodhicitta and being a bodhisattva, that you already have within you exceeding compassion for all living creatures who've forgotten their true nature. And these are the beings who are suffering terribly and tend to cause suffering for others in this world. So what is bodhicitta? Bodhicitta is a dedicated, heartfelt desire to fully awaken for the benefit of all other beings. It is the ultimate aim of much Buddhist practice. Bodhi means awake, or enlightened essence. And chitta means mind, heart. Both mind and heart. There there is no separation in the Buddhist teachings, particularly the Buddhist teachings on subtle body. And I don't know how many of you have read Philip's new book yet, How many of you have read Philip's new book? (laughs) If you want to read about the subtle body, I (laughs) entreat you, read Philip's new book. (laughs) It's quite a wild ride. Bodhicitta reminds us that every moment is an invitation to awaken all beings by motivating ourselves to engage in other regarding behaviors. This is how we take on the responsibility of decreasing the mass of human suffering by seeding the world with at least one more quiescent, wise, and compassionate person who moves through their life awakened and present to suffering and non-suffering. In other words, in order to practice bodhicitta, you do not have to be enlightened. And that is the joy of bodhicitta. 
So bodhicitta has two levels, absolute bodhicitta and relative or conventional bodhicitta. Absolute bodhicitta is the awakened mind-heart liberated from dualistic perception. So in the Theravada vehicle, that would mean absolute bodhicitta is at the level of arahantship. You have completely rid your mind, heart, and body of any grasping at greed, hatred, and delusion, and now you are an arahant. So that is absolute bodhicitta. It is a level of attainment. Dzogchen Kempo Choga Rinpoche says that generating bodhicitta means making your mind vast or courageous. In general, he says, our minds are limited and restricted by ego clinging. But the mind itself is as vast as space. A bodhisattva who practices bodhicitta seeks to open her mind and to make it as vast as the reaches of space. She contemplates the infinite number of sentient beings, the infinite amount of suffering which she wants to alleviate. She contemplates the infinite qualities of Buddhahood, which she wants all sentient beings to obtain. And through these contemplations, she breaks through the confines of a mind limited by ego clinging. In fact, the precious bodhicitta is the antidote to ego clinging. What Kempo is saying here is the practice of bodhicitta is to imagine your mind as vast as space. And those of us who aren't such great practitioners, we have to imagine our mind as vast as space because we can't directly experience the mind as vast as space, which of course it actually is. And so we imagine our mind as vast as space. And in that act, Kempo says this is courageous, and he's right. It's very brave to actually imagine your mind as vast as space. Go ahead, try it right now. See your mind as vast and open as space, limited by nothing, totally unperturbed and unobstructed. infinite in its capacity to know, unbounded in its capacity to receive whatever comes before it. Now from this vastness, see if it's easier for you to allow yourself to contemplate the vast numbers of sentient beings on this planet.
see them all completely capable of awakening as they are. For they too have minds as vast as space. Now see all of those beings recognizing the mind is vast as space. Just as easily as you're experiencing the vastness of mind, the vastness, the limitless numbers of sentient beings who also have minds as vast as space. Let the eyes open. See whether or not you have any ego clinging right now. Just notice. Maybe a little less. This is bodhicitta. Sometimes when people take the bodhisattva vow, you know, they get very overwhelmed. Oh my gosh, how am I supposed to liberate vast numbers of beings? Well, you know, that's a lot of ego, if that's the way you come at it. But if you recognize that mind is infinite, it's vast, it's space, Limitless numbers of beings can easily fit in the vastness of mind. And since all those beings have a mind as vast as space, there is nothing we need to do in order to liberate them. They're already liberated, they just don't realize it, just like we're already liberated, but we don't realize it. But eventually, hopefully, we'll all realize it. So since absolute bodhicitta is the awakened mind, we have to rely on relative bodhicitta. So relative bodhicitta is the path by which we realize absolute bodhicitta. And the path of relative bodhicitta has two aspects. Aspiration bodhicitta and application bodhicitta. And of course this makes a lot of sense because we have to aspire to awaken our mind for the benefit of all other beings. And then we have to have some way to do that. So aspiration bodhicitta is that beautiful altruistic desire to awaken and application bodhicitta is how to do it. And just in case you're feeling overwhelmed, I have a beautiful quote from Pema Chodron. And she always manages to take something that seems completely undoable and bring it down to... Uh, way of thinking about it that you think, oh yeah, I could do this too. So she says, the Buddha taught we are never separated from enlightenment. Even when we feel most stuck, we are never alienated from the awakened state. And this is a revolutionary assertion. Even ordinary people like us with hang-ups and confusion have the awakened mind of bodhicitta. The openness and warmth of bodhicitta is in fact our true nature. And bodhicitta, like the open sky, is always here, undiminished by the clouds that temporarily cover it. In the midst of our suffering, it is always available. So that's how we aspire. As we seek to awaken, we remember we already are awakened. We're just obscured from experiencing awakening directly. So then the aspiration is to polish the mirror. It's 
one of the great sayings in Buddhism, polishing the mirror of awareness, which is already clear, is just obscured, so that we are not viewing things as they actually are. So aspiring to awaken for the benefit of all beings means keeping that goal at the forefront of our thoughts and actions, no matter what causes and conditions we may encounter. And I think that's the hardest part of bodhicitta, no matter what causes and conditions we may encounter. Aspiration bodhicitta inspires us to be wise and compassionate, even when it may feel hard to do. And frankly, this is where commitment to practicing the six paramis or the ten paramitas, depending on which tradition you practice in, comes in handy. Now, I don't know how long it's been since somebody gave a Dharma talk on the paramitas. Has it been a long time? Yeah. So I thought I would just remind you, would that be okay to remind you? And since I practice in both traditions, I would love to offer both of the methodologies here. But let's start with the Theravada. So in the Theravada vehicle, these perfections, it's very interesting to think about something that's a perfection, isn't it? Because, you know, Nothing's perfect in this world, so here we are, we're practicing something that's supposed to be a perfection. A little bit of a conundrum. But as I read this list, you'll see that these are daily qualities that either we're bringing to our life or we could be bringing to our life pretty much most of the day. So on the one hand, the paramitas are very mundane, On the other hand, they have this incredible transcendent aspect to them. And that's what makes them so beautiful. That's why Bhikkhu Bodhi says that both in the Theravada as well as in the Mahayana and the Vajrayana, the practice of the ten or six paramis, paramitas, is a critical piece of awakening as a Buddha. In the Theravada, the ten paramitas are, well, the first two are easy, dana and sila, so generosity and ethical conduct. Now you might be thinking, why does she say these are easy? (laughs) Well, the truth is, this is how in Asia the Sangha practiced, pretty much, was offering their dana to the monks and keeping the Sangha alive and keeping the monks fed, And then in their daily lives as householders, they were practicing the ethical conduct that the Buddha laid forth throughout the suttas. He talked a lot about ethics. The Buddha was very much into behavior comporting of good children to their parents, behavior of good business people to their community, always living a very ethical life. Generosity, giving of oneself, Virtue, morality, and proper conduct is critically important in every single one of the schools of Buddhism. And I tell you, it doesn't matter how esoteric the Buddhist path gets. There's a beautiful quote by Padmasambhava. I don't know if any of you know who Padmasambhava was, but he was a great Indian teacher who the second time brought uh, Buddhism 
into Tibet. The first time Buddhism came in Tibet and got run out of Tibet. The second time Padmasambhava came in and said, I don't care what it takes, it's going to stay in Tibet, and it did. And he was a very esoteric teacher. He taught Tantra, and so these are very esoteric teachings. But I have read this quote over and over again, and it basically boils down to Padmasambhava saying, if you're not practicing ethical conduct, you're not going to get anywhere with your tantric practice. You know, you can go do all these crazy stuff if you want to, but if you're not steeped in ethical conduct, you're going nowhere. So the next two of the ten paramitas are nikama and pana, and nikama is renunciation. Renunciation is a very beautiful practice. Um, it's a very important practice for practicing bodhicitta, because all in the liturgy of bodhisattvas, the bodhisattva is actually renouncing final, total, complete, parinirvana, leaving the planet, leaving the body, the whole deal, until every single other sentient being on this planet is enlightened. That's pretty big renunciation, don't you think? I'm staying until every one of these ignorant people is enlightened. That's like the ultimate renunciation. But in our personal lives, renunciation is something we can practice every single day. I mean, there's lots of times when we have to not go after something, we have to be unselfish, we have to decide how to actually comport ourselves in a way where we have some humility. So renunciation is very important for spiritual practice of all kinds. And pana, pana is transcendental wisdom. Again, we're back to that transcendental aspect here. And this is ultimate knowledge. This is knowledge that transcends all ignorance, greed, and hatred. It is the knowledge of the way things actually are in the Buddha called it suchness. It is this sense of unperturbed, unconditioned awareness. Ajahn Smeda referred to it as the deathless. It is this awareness that we always have, but at the same time we must cultivate awareness of. It's always there, but it's obscured, so we have to cultivate our experience of it. And all of the other nine paramitas, to me, are set up to cultivate pan, transcendental wisdom. Every single one of the paramitas lead to recognizing things as they actually are, such as. The next two are seemingly in polarity, but not. Virya and Kanti, energy and patience. You might think these somehow are opposite, but they're not. It actually takes quite a lot of energy to be patient, I think. And I was born and raised in New York, so let me tell you, one of my continual practices is cultivating patience. So it takes a lot of energy to recognize that patience is a critical part of renunciation. 
It's a critical part of virtue, and it's also a critical part of generosity. The last four are interesting qualities. So there's Sacha, Aditana, Metta, and Upeka. Now, Metta and Upeka, you know, right? So Metta is loving kindness, and Upeka is equanimity. The two you may not know, Sacha is truthfulness or honesty, and Aditana is determination or resolution. I don't know if any of you have been listening to Stephen Batchelor's recent teachings. If you're interested in listening, I don't know how many of you subscribe to the Upaya uh, Zen Center's podcast, but Stephen taught there a few months ago, and he was teaching on his latest book, which is a very interesting book. And what he Basically, he's on this path now of translating, I should say re-translating, the Pali Canon in a way that makes sense to him. I know that sounds strange, but he basically has decided that the historical Buddha was a very particular kind of person and that maybe a lot of what is in the Pali Canon doesn't have so much to do with his actual teachings as a person. So what he's gone and done is he has retranslated some of the Pali Canon using a more secular view. And he says there's no such thing as ultimate truth. That in fact, it's more truth the way you see it. After I heard one of, the, one of these lectures, I went to the Samyutta Nikaya and I looked up where truth actually showed up. And most of the word truth actually were all the references to the noble truths, the four noble truths, and the few that weren't in the index, in the back for truth, the few were actually the Buddha talking about dependent origination, which is a view he had of the way all experience arises, exists, and passes away. So I can see where he's going with this. In terms of the paramitas, though, truthfulness and honesty is very much a value. It isn't, okay, this is my truth right now. It's more, can I be brutally honest with myself about who I am and how I am? Can I actually see things from a completely honest point of view? And as I communicate with other people, can I communicate with a level of truthfulness? And it's a paramita, so which means there has to be some transcendent perfection of truthfulness, which I am assuming ultimately satya turns into suchness, seeing things the way they actually are, knowing the true nature of oneself and of reality. In the Mahayana, the six paramis are Dana, generosity, 
sila, ethical conduct. The third one is dhyana, which is samadhi, the practice of perfect concentration, one-pointed awareness. Being able to tame the mind so that the mind can be aimed, settled, and allow itself to be completely calm, totally clear, and fully awake. That's the third parami. In Mah- I know, that's the third parami in the Mahayana. That is a tall order. But what follows is prajna, which is the same thing as pana, transcendental wisdom. Once one is able to practice, you are able to actually experience transcendental wisdom. And then the last two are virya and kshanti, patience and energy. Not that much different. The Mahayana is a little more structured because the bodhisattva and the bodhisattvic path is much more potent and much more practicable over in the Mahayana. And so the paramis are a big part of what people are actually practicing when they practice in the Mahayana school of Buddhism. Maybe you can see how in your daily life these would come in quite handy. I know for me, they, when I practice the paramis or the paramitas, I feel as though I am doing something that gets traction in terms of being able to be more skillful in my life. I may not feel more enlightened. I'm not sure when that will ever happen in this lifetime. I feel like there's something different happening when I practice with the perfections. So aspiration bodhicitta is a necessary precondition for application bodhicitta. And application bodhicitta is the means by which we carry out our efforts to awaken all beings. The more we practice on the cushion and in daily life, the more absolute bodhicitta, immeasurable compassion, and unbounded wisdom blossom from within us and without us. And of course, that is the whole goal, is it not? So I have three main ways in which I try to apply bodhicitta. The first is my efforts to recognize forms of suffering and when I choose to alleviate that suffering either in myself or in others. <coughs> and one of the basic ways I do this is reminding myself that when my mind is playing tricks on itself, I often become lost in my mind's mental trickery. When I'm fortunate enough to realize that I am lost in my mind's trickery, that is a moment where I am waking up from my delusional habit of unawareness. And by the way, that moment can happen any time you like. That is always available, because if your mind's like my mind, my mind is lost in trickery quite a lot. But every single moment my mind is lost is equally a moment when I can recognize and awaken right then out of delusion. 
The question is, in the next moment, am I going to go back into being lost, into my mind's trickery, or am I going to stay awake and undiluted? And also, because we're talking about bodhicitta, it's equally true that right in that moment of awakening, from my mind's own trickery, I can actually contemplate the mass of humanity that is also continually lost in their own mental trickery, and see them and see myself awake and free of delusion and mental trickery. And this is a beautiful way to practice bodhicitta. And this is something I do a lot. Simple and it's effective. So I offer that as the first application skill. The second one is something you already know, and this is meditation. There's nothing like shamatha and vipassana practice. Shamatha means concentration practice. This is allowing the mind to be trained, to stay with a particular object of perception, and then to become so in the experience of that object as it actually is, that there's no separation. It's one of those moments where the dualistic perception can actually fall away. And then the mind becomes very one-pointed. And now, by the way, you're in dhyana, you're in samadhi. So now you have the capacity to then have insight into the nature of reality. This is vipassana or vipassana. So from that clear, collected mind, then insight can arise. And I have a beautiful little quote from the Buddha to inspire you to be on the cushion and practice. He says, People are tied to their acquisitions, to what is seen, heard, sensed, and felt. Dispel desire for this and be unstirred. They call him a sage who clings to nothing here. So, that is the reason to practice meditation. There is nothing to cling to. So why not be on the cushion? The last of my three is engaging in life-affirming actions. And this comes along the lines of Donna and Sila, to me. Ethical conduct and generosity are life-affirming actions. And I have a quote from Shantideva to inspire you toward ethical conduct and generosity and renunciation. He says, Just as I'd take great pains and be careful about a wound, when standing in the midst of an unstable wild crowd, so too I shall safeguard always the wound of my mind, since I'm living in the midst of difficult people. That's Shantideva. He doesn't make any bones about things. So he's saying, when we are living in the midst of chaos, which I think we can all agree we are living in the midst of chaos, taming the mind keeps us not only from being lost in a wild, unstable crowd, but from being the bodhisattva who actually cultivates 
the mind of awareness that allows the whole wild, unstable crowd to settle. Just by virtue of our stability of mind. This is why it's very courageous to be a bodhisattva. It takes a lot of courage. What I'd like to do in order to really bring home all of this is to tell you the story of Angulimala. How many of you have heard the story of Angulimala? So it won't take very long, but it's very important with Bodhicitta. This is from the Pali Canon. The Buddha was staying near Savati at Jetta's Grove. And at that time in King Pasanadi's realm, there was a bandit named Angulimala. He was brutal and devoted to killing and slaying. Having repeatedly killed other human beings, he wore a garland made of fingers. So whoever he killed, he took one of the fingers and that was his mala, kind of the anti-Buddha, having a mala of fingers. One day, the Buddha went into Savati to do an alms round. So he had his bowl, and he would go house to house as a monk, asking people for alms, for food, for his midday meal. As he walked along the road where Angulimala was staying, the locals saw him and they said, don't walk that road, monk, for on that road is Angulimala. They were very fearful for the Buddha. Yet the Buddha walked on. Then Angulimala saw the Buddha coming in the distance. And seeing him, Angulimala thought, Isn't it amazing? This contemplative comes attacking me alone and without a companion. Why don't I kill him? So Angulimala took up his sword and his shield, and he buckled on his bow and quiver and followed behind the Buddha. But though Angulimala ran with all his might as fast as he could, he could not catch up to the Buddha who remained walking at a normal pace. And then Angulimala was completely stunned. Isn't it amazing? I can't catch up with this contemplative walking at a normal pace. So he finally stopped and he yelled at the Buddha, stop. And the Buddha turned around and he replied, I have stopped Angulimala. You stop. And then Angulimala asked, while walking contemplative, you say I have stopped. But you say I haven't stopped. The Buddha replied, I have stopped Angulimala once and for all, having cast off violence toward all living beings. You, though, are unrestrained toward beings. That's how I've stopped and you haven't. Upon hearing 
this incredible dhamma, Angulimala explained, I too will abandon evil. And so saying, he hurled his sword and weapons over a cliff, and he paid homage to the Buddha, who then accepted Angulimala into the order of the monks as his attendant. Now, I read this story to you because this is a perfect example of bodhicitta. This is as good as bodhicitta gets. First of all, utter fearlessness. The Buddha is not afraid of Angulimala. And that is because he has perfected the ten perfections. He has thoroughly awakened. So he understands the nature of suffering in Angulimala's mind, and he does not participate in the nature of suffering. And therefore, there's no way that Angulimala can catch up to him. And yet, the Buddha, rather than being angry at Angulimala, rather than saying to him, you're an awful person, you have this necklace of fingers, you've killed all these people, he essentially turns and awakens him on the spot. And this is what a bodhisattva does. The bodhisattva does not prevent anyone from awakening. A bodhisattva does not see anyone and anyone's ignorance as an obstacle to their awakening. Because I assure you, every one of us, even people who perpetrate the kinds of harm that I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, have this equal capacity to awaken to their true nature as any one of us. And that is what the Bodhisattva does. The Bodhisattva knows that truth and lives by that truth. And that is how the Bodhisattva can practice for the benefit of all other beings. So Alan Wallace says that when bodhicitta arises spontaneously and effortlessly, suffusing your entire lifestyle, then you are a bodhisattva. So until then, (laughs) us ordinary beings, or at least me, me, the ordinary being, we have right view and wise seeing to guide our (laughs) practice of bodhicitta and our recollection of the following truths. So I will leave you with these truths. One, the fundamental purpose of human life is to end suffering by recognizing the dependently originated apparency of all internal and external phenomena. Two, all human minds are negatively influenced by ignorance, greed, and hatred. Hence, All human beings are the owners and heirs of their perceptions, thoughts, emotions, and actions. And three, due to the immeasurable clarity of awareness, every moment of our human existence is endowed with the potential for full liberation from affected perception. That one is most important. Due to the immeasurable clarity of awareness, 
transcendent wisdom. Every moment of human existence is endowed with potential for full-on liberation from all afflictions, from all afflicted perceptions. So when we live with our intention, and when we live with right seeing, we always have the opportunity for clear comprehension of causes and conditions and the active pursuit of mindful thoughts, speech, emotion, and behavior. Never forget that every one of you and all other human beings, no matter how lost in suffering we may be, we really are already the unconditioned, boundlessly compassionate, wakeful cognizance that we've been waiting for. We are never not that. And that is how we can practice bodhicitta, because we already are that. So keep practicing.